0: Good morning. Thank you to all of you who are joining us online and uh, all of you who are here and like I can see you. That's awesome. It's good to see y'all and uh, excited this morning um, to begin to talk about um, uh, a talk we're calling unfriend uh, as our lights are going on and off here. Here we go. We're going to welcome everybody. We just lost our light switch. There it is. Um, and the, the subtitle is really the heart of, of where we're going to head with this. And that is the idea of recovering the concept of friendship, the idea of friendship in a cancel culture, in the age uh, in which we live. And what I, I believe is that the idea of friendship right now has been really misdefined. The concept of being a friend today is is has become really fragile, really shallow And honestly, the word friend has become kind of cheap. And I think because of how social media has changed our reality and changed how we interact, we literally use the word friend in a way that it doesn't even match the definition. I mean, think about it. Think think about how the word friend is defined in the dictionary. And then think about some of the people who are your Facebook friends. (laughs) They're not your friends. And I think the vision was to grow the definition of friendship. And instead, we've kind of cheapened it. So I, I had a moment this summer uh, in Tennessee. I was speaking at a youth camp, and I meet this guy. We both graduated from the same Bible college 150 years ago, and we know a lot of the same people, but we'd actually never met. But we've been Facebook friends for years, and we know so many people. And so we're having this conversation, the first time we've ever met, and one of us said to the other, Hey, I think we're friends, aren't we? Think about that question. If you have to ask... If you have to ask somebody whether or not you're actually friends, by definition, I don't think y'all are friends, right? Like, we've changed this whole concept of friendship. And then you add to that what we're seeing in our culture today. Already with a, a polluted or a cheapened definition of friendship, and now we see how we're turning on one another. So there was headlining news this week that the next season of The Walking Dead, season eleven, will be its final season. And I think a lot of people have already stopped watching that show. Um, But it was interesting, I started asking around, did you used to watch the show or have you watched the show? And I couldn't believe how many people I spoke to were like, absolutely, I watched it like crazy, but it's not as good anymore. And and I can tell you this, I've never watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. And I don't say that to, like, Jesus Juke pastorally. Like, I don't watch violence and there's bad language. Like, I know nothing about it. I don't know. Like, it might be the most corrupt, perverted show that's ever existed. I don't know. All I know about The Walking Dead is it's about zombies. I'm out. Like, I've never watched it because I, I mean this. This isn't just a sermon illustration. Like, zombies. Did you catch that? Like, I mean it. It's not a sermon illustration. Anyways, so... Like all of Blake's sermon illustrations are made up. Anyways, um, sorry, sorry. Um, no, zombies literally freak me out. Like for real freak me out. Like the, the lack of conscience where they just devour everything and like tear everything down and burn everything down freaks me out. Like the, the total lack of, of moral compass just is dark to me, right? It just freaks me out. And, and I've been reading a new book by a guy named Mark Buchanan. I've mentioned him before, um, but he just released a new book in the last couple of weeks called God Walk. And in there, he talks about this idea of our obsession with zombies as a culture. And he, he says it's, it, that he finds it interesting. He said, I, he said, I think we as a society are working out some deep-rooted anxiety or fear about some kind of horrible action. And, and, and I, I looked up, because I've never seen it, to find out what started the, the, the zombie apocalypse in the Walking Dead storyline. And I don't know if you remember, those of you who used to watch it, if you can remember back to season one, episode one. It's a super contagious virus that turns normal, kind, healthy people into cannibals. That was in 2010. Here we are a decade later and we're in the, this is the Truman show zombie style. We are in, if you've not seen the movie, I highly recommend it. Like literally we're living this out, right? This idea of humans losing their humanity. This idea of, of this zombie apocalypse where not just the evil zombies, right? But one of the things that, that Mark Buchanan talks about is the living on this show. Those who are not yet zombies almost lose their humanity just as much he he said that that they're living and they're still human but barely because no one's flourishing everybody's just eking out an existence at the very edge of catastrophe and chaos they fight with one another over diminishing supplies and he's talking about food but let's just substitute toilet paper They lie to one another and about one another. They are paranoid. They distrust everyone. They exploit one another. They become mean, tribal, cruel, and territorial. And then he says this, maybe the zombie apocalypse is already underway. And here's what's amazing about that. He wrote those words in January. Before the virus. Before we watched us turn on one another and cannibalize one another. Before we have seen tribalism at its worst in our culture, I find it super ironic, and and maybe those of you who are Walking Dead fans find this really sad, but I find it hysterically ironic that the season 10 finale, the final episode of season 10, has not been aired because production has been shut down due to a super contagious virus. (laughs) It's just funny. Maybe, though, we can follow along these lines. We are the sons and daughters of the walking living. Right? That, that because we've experienced resurrection life in Jesus Christ, we walk into chaos and, and, and catastrophe and distrust and ugliness with hope and with grace. What if we are the people who don't melt down, flip out, fume, storm, gripe, and rant? What if we choose kindness? What if, as the walking living, we decide that in this cancer, uh, this cancel culture, what we really need to cancel is cannibalism? And what we need to recover is a biblical definition of being a friend. So I invite you, please, to grab your Bible this morning, and we're going to jump in. So before we dive in, uh, invite any of our guests with us, even if you're following us online this morning, uh, to hold up your Bibles and declare a creed together before we jump in. Helps us set our hearts and get them in focus as we begin this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to first Samuel chapter 23, first Samuel chapter 23. Sorry, pardon my giggle. Um, like some of y'all hold your phones up and Courtney just held hers up with her flashlight on. And I thought I was at a concert there for a minute. <laughs> the Bible is the word of God. And it, sorry, that just completely derailed me. Um, First Samuel chapter 23, Courtney loves when she gets public attention like that. So everybody just look Courtney's direction. Can we get a camera on? I'm just kidding. She is never coming back to this church. So this morning, this morning, we're going to look at the most iconic friendship, some would say, in the Bible, the story of David and Jonathan. And we're going to look at this historic friendship, which um, which some liberal theologians have sought to corrupt and, um, and have done some pretty horrible things with this friendship. But it's, it's one of the few stories that we see in the Bible of two people just looking out for each other, being what I believe is God's definition of a friend. And for those of you who don't know the story of, of David, the little shepherd boy who kills Goliath, who is anointed as the future, soon coming king, he is the second king In the the life of the children of Israel, the first king is Saul. His son, Jonathan, would have been an heir to the throne if God had not rejected Saul and his dynasty. And David ends up becoming king. And the most unlikely of friends, David and Jonathan, are friends. And what we're going to do to begin this morning is we're actually not going to look at the beginning of their friendship. We're going to look at the ending. So this week, maybe you saw a meme that went around. And maybe this goes around every year and I just never noticed it before um but on September 10th i saw a lot of you sharing a meme that said um think about 9 years ago that thousands of people didn't know it was their last night with their families on the eve of September uh, before September 11th and and that thought has never stood out to me like that before the fact is we don't usually know when it's our last time with a friend right and yet we have a, a snapshot here in the scriptures of the last encounter of this friendship. David, uh, because he is the heir to the throne in God's dynasty, is hiding out for his life. Saul wants to kill him. All of the resources of Saul's kingdom is seeking for David. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15 this morning of 1 Samuel chapter 23. It says this, David Saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Vif at Horish, verse sixteen, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. I love that picture there, because David's hand at that point is hiding in a cave, <laughs> fearful for his life. Wondering what in the world God is up to. Where's my defender, my protector? This this eloquent writer of the Psalms writes some of his most downcast Psalms during this moment. We believe from this very cave where he's hiding. David is met by his friend Jonathan there. He strengthened his hand in God. Verse 17, he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. The NIV uses the word second to you there. Saul, my father, also knows this. Verse 18, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. The last time they ever saw each other. I want to talk this morning about recovering The idea of the heart of God for friendship in a cancel culture. The idea of unfriending. Here, this is the last moment that these two friends see each other. I want to make a couple observations this morning. And the first one is this. I believe that friends begin with God. Friends begin with God. And what I mean by that, it's just a shorter way of saying it, friendship is established like the foundation for a real friendship. The basis is, is God-centered. True friendship begins with building a relationship around God. We saw that that Saul strengthened David's hand in God. And the reason I think that's so important is I believe that true friendship is built on something greater than the friendship. There's something more important than the friends themselves. It's the faith that unites them. I don't believe that true friendship is agreeing on everything. It's just agreeing on the most important things. I'm going to say that again because apparently that's not accepted in our culture anymore. True friendship is not agreeing on everything. It's agreeing on the most important things. And the problem is we've built entire friendships, decades sometimes of friendships, built on unimportant things. That's why they don't endure. That's why we turn on each other at the drop of a hat. The fact is a true friendship is built on more than a mutual sports team. A true friendship is built on more than we grew up together. We went to school together. A lot of people's friendship is just because they work together. It's like they pragmatically decided if we have to be stuck in cubicles side by side, I might as well pretend to like you. And so the only basis of the friendship is geographical location. The friendship is based on real estate. Right? And, and for a lot of men, the basis of their friendship is the fact that their wives are friends. Right? Like two ladies become good friends and the dudes are like, whatever, (laughs) right? Like, oh, when did y'all become friends? When our wives told us we had to. Like they don't even have anything in common, right? There's a better basis for friendship. It's more than, oh, we like to hunt together or we like to fish together or we like to eat together. or We like to shop together. That there's a deeper basis of this friendship. It's built on the number one priority of my life. And that is the God of the Bible. We're pursuing him together, which means if we have different political interpretations, I'm not done with you. We just see this differently. We can even have conversations about differing points of view and not sin against each other. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That true friendship is built on our faith. And when that is the foundation, when that is the the established beginning of a friendship, we can endure all kinds of changes. And Jonathan and David became friends for one reason. Jonathan saw in David a heart for his God. We'll look at the beginning of their friendship in a minute. He saw one thing, courageous faith in God. He went, hey, me too. Their upbringings were as different as night and day. Their destinies seemed to be as different as night and day. They had one uniting factor, courage in God, period. That's it the fact is we've changed the term friendship into you have the same hobbies as me which means I don't have to be uncomfortable at all to be around you <laughs> we do all the things I like oh we're friends no you're friends with yourself dude that was the basis of the friendship is faith in God there's there's this concept I believe is as, as well that, that's important their, their friendship was based on a an abiding, driving, passionate hope in a future kingdom. Their hope wasn't just for the here and now and for the momentary. Uh, we're, we're parked here in verse sixteen, but verse seventeen, where where uh, uh, Jonathan tells David, "Listen, you're gonna be king. You're gonna be king." The fact is, a couple years later, Jonathan would die on the battlefield, in war against the Philistines. David grieved and mourned the death of his friend. And then many more years passed. It was around ten years, maybe as many as twelve years, from the time they had this conversation in that little cave, before David became a king at all. And then he was only king of Judah. It was another at least seven years before he became king of Israel. Almost two decades after this encouraging word from God, Jonathan speaks over David, you're going to be a future king. The kingdom is going to be yours. Jonathan never lived to see the day, and it was nearly two decades later before it became reality. And I'm saying all that to say their friendship wasn't just based on the here and now. What united their hearts is what God was going to do in the next kingdom. And the fact is, I don't think we're going to see everything go our way here and now. Our friendship is not based on everything's going to be perfect and good in this life and we're just going to be like an Andy Griffith episode. Everything will be handled by the end and we can whistle and go fishing. No, our hope is in the kingdom that is to come. An unshakable promise that the kingdom of God will come, will be visible, will manifest and make right everything that is wrong. That's what unites the people of God. Hope in a future kingdom. Friends begin with God. When we start there, we can endure all kinds of conflict. We can endure all kinds of disappointment. We can endure all kinds of disagreements because we're united in our faith. Second observation I would make from this friendship here in the Bible is friends show up friends show up Jonathan got up and went and pursued his friend David and I love this I'd never thought of this before I I read this from Mark Buchanan in that book he talked about think think about all of the resources available to Saul right like he's looking for the rebel in a cave like this is straight up looking for Osama bin Laden kind of a thing right and like he's got all of the resources of the kingdom to pursue David, and it says, "And Jonathan went to him, <laughs> like he like he knew where he was. That, that's how kindred of spirits they were. He walked. He he leaves the comfort and safety, goes to the dangerous place to sit with his friend who's in crisis, who's grieving, who's in trouble. The biblical definition of friendship is we show up in the hard places." we show up in the in the heartbreak in the in the suffering in the difficult times they became friends we'll look at it in just a second they became friends when everything was great they became friends after the David and Goliath story right what a great story a story that secular novelists talk about this story that's when they became friends i believe god gives us friends in the good times for the bad times. And if what we do when stuff gets tough. Is we withdraw and we're like I don't know what I would say. I don't know that I, I might ask the wrong questions. I'm just going to man I don't know what to do. And we distance ourselves when stuff gets worse. And I don't think that's what biblical friends do. Biblical friends go man that looks like a mess. I'm going to jump straight into that with my friend. Friends show up. In the hard places. And in suffering, not they bail, including if they brought that difficult situation on themselves. Right. Even when they've made their own mess, I'll still go sit in it with them because that's what friends do. And I love how 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 he meets him in this, like he encourages him in God, like this thought that what friends do is they point each other to God. And sometimes the best way to do that as a friend is just show up. Like, I want to believe that there's this big gap. There's this big distance between verse 16 and verse 17. Like, I want to believe that, like, Jonathan showed up in the little cave and just sat down for a while. He was just there. Like, he just sent the sign up. I'm here with you, man. And then eventually started to talk. Because sometimes our friends don't need us to have the right answers. They need us to be present. Like, I'm here. I'm here to listen. I'm here to to show you that I'm with you. And when it's time, I'm going to speak up. And both of those are important. Be present. Be quiet when you need to be quiet and listen. But when it's time, speak up. Because good friends don't let their friends drift off into unbelief, drift off into despair, drift off into discouragement. And I'll watch men and women of God have a conversation with a friend who's in crisis and we go, I'm really sorry you feel that way. That's a great place to start, but don't stop there. I'm sorry you feel that way. And I believe God is for you. And I believe you're going to get to the other side of this. And I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead for you to die here. You're going to make it. You're going to get there. Like, we're the people of hope. Let's speak up and speak life over one another. Jonathan says, while David's hiding in a cave thinking, I'm going to die tonight. Jonathan's like, you're going to sit on a throne. What? He spoke faith. Over his friend, not faith in the circumstances, not faith in David, faith in their God. That's what friends do. Friends speak faith over one another. Number three, friends sacrifice. Friends sacrifice. I was going to word this, friendship costs us something. True friendship is not established on convenience. True friendship is costly. There's sacrifice involved in it. And I I said this a little bit earlier. A friendship that's only based on convenience and mutual interest is actually self-love. You understand that when I say that? Like, I'm only friends with you because you like what I like. That means I like me. I'm only friends with you because you're easy to be a friend with. That means I like myself more than I like you. True friendship costs us something. Right? And we all know that because the concept of friendship is never more clearly defined than when you have to move. Right? So you're like, who's going to show up? <laughs> right? Here's the deal. My wife plays piano. Do you know what that means is in my house? friends show up and sacrifice to serve one another. We had a group of guys out yesterday building a ramp for Jerry Way. You know why? Because they're just trying to be friends to her. Give up our Saturday. Go out and sweat. Let's go. Friendship costs something. This idea that... um I, I told you that in the, in the uh, NIV that it, it reads that That you'll be king over Israel and I will be second to you. I'll be second to you. I I was thinking about that that idea of I am second, right? You've all seen the I am second videos about 10 years ago, I guess. This organization based here in the Metroplex went viral with these uh, celebrities and well-known people sharing these powerful stories of things that they've overcome and why they've placed Christ first in their lives. And then they end every one of those videos saying... I am second. And, and I think it's a great organization. They are really inspirational videos. But I really think the biblical definition of friendship is I am third. Because what Saul's saying is, the, or Jonathan, rather, the son of Saul is saying, is number one is the God whose kingdom this truly belongs to. And then number two is how can I serve you, my friend? I'll be third. <laughs> In, in true friendship we're saying listen God's number 1 in my life and I'm going to place you before me I'm going to serve you as more important than me as 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 before me I'm going to sacrifice for you and so I want us to look at the beginning of this friendship so if you've got your bible if you're using a a device where you can just scroll or turn uh look at chapter 18 turn over to chapter 18 and before we get there here's the setting so 1 Samuel 17 is a really important chapter. That's the David and Goliath story. And if you're not familiar with the story, David, the shepherd boy, shows up. There's a giant, an actual giant. Yes, we believe that that's literally a giant. And he is is uh, uh, speaking horrible things about our God, the God that we follow today, and the people of God. And everybody's afraid of this guy and the shepherd boy who is trained in using A slingshot comes out, grabs five smooth stones, knocks the giant down. And in my whole childhood, that's where the story ended. Because my Sunday school teachers left out the best part of the story. I've told you this before. Best part of the story is he knocks Goliath down. And then the mild little shepherd boy playing his little harp, not so much. Dude goes over there, grabs Goliath's sword, chops his head off, picks up the decapitated head like straight up, William Wallace, freedom, like, and then they chase after, see, Sunday school, I had to pay attention, if they had told that, I want to see that flannel graph, cut the head off, and move it over here, <laughs> that veggie tail, chop the cucumber, and anyways, <laughs> oh, where's my head, anyways, so, I lost it there for a minute. Lost my grip. Um, so he they pers- like when he does this, these cowering soldiers now charge onto the battlefield. Get a grip and pursue the Philistine army. They raid their camp. It's this incredible victory. The end of First Samuel chapter seventeen. Saul asks his right hand guy, who's he? Which is a great question, right? Who's the one with Goliath's Head in his hands. Who's the one trying to get ahead in life? I had to. I'm sorry. For those of you who just unfollowed uh, our church, please don't, don't not pursue Jesus. I'm sorry. Um, he says, Who is this guy? I want to meet him. And so, literally, it's in the Bible in, in, in the end of, of chapter 17 that David comes and, and meets the king and has a whole conversation with him. With the head in his hand. Yes, sir? Like, whole conversation with a decapitated head. It's greatness. Happy Halloween. And Jonathan would have been either present or nearby. As the prince, as the number two in waiting, he would have been nearby. Which is where we pick up chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Those words are really important. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourself. Scriptures use that language all the time when it talks about how we're supposed to treat people because God knows that we tend to love ourselves more than anybody else. It's powerful. Jonathan said, I'll be third. <laughs> I'll love God more than myself, and I will love you more than myself. He loved him as his own soul. Uh, verse number two is weird for us. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That does not mean he became a captive. Uh, that That's actually like you have to try my grandmother's apple pie. Like you have to come to the kingdom and let us spoil you and make you part of ...of our dynasty here. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. There's that language again. And then this is profound. Verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. That that robe was not just a, what am I going to wear today? It was a sign of his royalty. Saul was the first king in the history of Israel, which made Jonathan the first prince in the history of Israel. When Saul became king, he was actually given a promise of this throne will be yours and your children and your children's children and the children after them. This wasn't just the beginning of a reign. This was the beginning of a dynasty. It was supposed to be until he turned his back on God. Jonathan takes off the visible, authoritative sign of his rights to the throne the first time he ever has a conversation with David. That is some serious sacrifice, y'all. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor. He laid down his defenses. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And even his sword and his bow and his belt, he disarms himself, gives away his protection his defensiveness and his power and position and rights to the throne in the first conversation they ever had, he sacrifices all of that. What's interesting is no one on planet Earth had more to lose in that friendship than Jonathan. Hang with me for just a minute, okay? So. If we rewind, you can go back and and read this later. But if you go back to to just a few chapters before this, Saul's heart has become hardened against God. God has said, you're not going to be able to pass the throne down to your children. But you will reign until the end of your life. Verse 15, David is anointed as the future king of Israel. Chapter 16, Goliath. And then we, or chapter 17 rather, Goliath, and then we have chapter 18 here, they become friends. So literally, David's not a threat to Saul. Saul's going to reign until he dies. He's only a threat to Jonathan. And Jonathan says, Because your love for God and the kingdom of God and the people of God is so strong, I'm not threatened by you. I'm going to lay down the defenses. And I don't know about you, but what I see right now in our society is a profound defensiveness. We are so ready to bite everybody's head off if they say one thing just the wrong way. About a year and a half ago, we had Dr. Tom Messer and his wife, Lisa, here. And and Lisa spoke to us, and she was just speaking in a marriage context. But good grief, I think we need to look at this phrase in a broader context. She said this. She said, every day we have a choice as to whether or not we will carry a spirit of offense. Isn't that powerful? Every day we will decide whether or not we will carry a spirit of offense. You get to choose today. Church, I want you to hear me. I love you. Hear me. Hear me. You get to choose today whether or not to be offended by everything. That's up to you. You don't have to be offended that everybody doesn't agree with you. We still believe in freedom of thought in this country. We believe that people don't have to see everything the way we see everything. Because the fact is, you and I don't see everything the way we saw everything a year ago or two years ago. Like, people change. Give them space. True friendship lays down the defenses. And true friendship isn't on the attack. We need to put down the sword. <laughs> Say, there's something greater that unites us. I'm willing to sacrifice for your good. I'm willing to sacrifice for your benefit. Jonathan could have lived his whole life in threat of David. And instead, they have the strongest friendship we see anywhere in the Bible. That means we have a choice today about whether or not we'll be friends. We're going to pick back up again in the middle of this story and continue to unpack this as we continue to talk about pressing back against cancel culture. But here's where I want to end our thought this morning. There's no friendship where we see greater sacrifice than the son of God laying down his life for you and for me. And so today, we're not trying to be better friends because we're trying to get our way into heaven or to be good people or for God not to be ticked off at us. We were enemies with God, the book of Romans says, and he made us friends. He did all that work. He did all that sacrifice to make us friends with God. And so the way we treat one another is just an overflow, an extension of how we've been treated by God. And this morning, if you don't know for sure that you've experienced being made right with God, we don't want you to leave this place today. We don't want you to end this service online today without engaging, beginning a conversation about how you can enter the true friendship, the greatest friendship that's ever existed, the heart of God towards humankind. And so we're going to, in a few moments, sing one final song. And while we do that, there will be some men and women in the prayer room in the back. If you want to have a conversation, we'd love to do that. Or you can go online and and you can click a link that says, can we talk? If you're watching right now, there's a link right next to this video. It says, can we talk? And anybody, whether you're in the room or online, you can fill out that form and say, I need to sit down and talk to somebody. We can talk over FaceTime or we can meet in person or we can talk on the phone, whatever's most comfortable with you. We just think this is where it all begins. Because once that's settled, we believe what the world is desperate to see today is people who treat one another as though they live for something greater than themselves. That they truly are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness above everything else. That's the definition of friendship that we're beginning to recover when we look to the scriptures today. And, my friends, that's the friendship God calls us to live out in the eyes, in the view, of a desperate and divided world. I think, if I remember right, I think I said this four years ago. I think during the election cycle four years ago, I said these words. Never in my life have I seen our culture so angry and divided. And I find myself four years later longing for four years ago. I believe how much hate there is, how much anger there is towards people who don't even have any power or control to fix anything. And the hope is not that our politicians will be nice to each other. Buckle up. It's about to get worse. No, the hope is that the people of God will act like God's the most important thing to us. Not that he's a matter of convenience, not that he's on the list of things. Like, here's my spiritual life. I want to vote this way. I want my uh, American dream to be intact. I sure don't want to get COVID. I don't care if anybody else does. I don't want my rights to be taken away. And I'll go to church when it's convenient. Listen, the world's seen enough of that they need to see people who say, I'm living for another kingdom. It's what's driving me. It's the basis for my relationships with people who look different than me, think different than me, vote different than me. We're united because the kingdom of God, we want to see it made manifest through how we treat one another. That is what our world is desperate for today. And I believe you can live that difference out at your job place, in your neighborhood, in your family. I believe that's why God's made you his friends is that you can be a visible expression of recovering friendship in a cancel culture.